Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we have come to the mountain peak of Revelation tonight, and it is a breathtaking view. One of my favorite scenes in C.S. Lewis's book or movie, I think they made a couple into movies, The Chronicles of Narnia, is when Aslan is, uh, is encamped and the White Witch brings Edmund uh, to Aslan and begins to demand his death as a son of Adam. Because Edmund, if you know the story, has betrayed not only his siblings, but, but also Aslan himself, because of that, the law of Narnia requires death at the white witch's hand. And so she comes in in pomp and circumstance, and she begins to demand his death. And in mid-sentence, as she is stating what, what is required, Aslan roars very, very loudly, and she jumps, and, and he says, Don't cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there whenever it was written, the deep magic being the law. And, of course, Aslan is a portrayal of Christ. And then the scene goes on, he agrees to take the son of Adam's place, and, and die in, in Edmund's stead on the stone table. And that happens, and then he, he raises from the dead. It's probably one of the most powerful scenes in the, in the movie. Well, there's, a coming, there's coming a day, not only when the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to roar, but he's also going to ride. This is one who was there whenever it was written, before the earth ever was. The Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ is, is not only the second person of the Trinity and the eternal Son, but He's the Creator. Colossians tells us that. All things were created by Him and for Him. And one day He's going to return to this earth and He's going to destroy all of His enemies. And that's what we're going to see here tonight. We've been walking through Revelation, and, and where we left off was all of the armies of the world were gathered. You remember the river Euphrates was dried up, and they've all gathered in the valley of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, at the Mount of Megiddo, which we translate into Armageddon. So all of the armies of the world are gathered in this valley, in this place, and we got to see the destruction of the Antichrist's um, uh, spiritual center. Uh, we got to see the destruction of the Antichrist's economic world. And now we're brought back where we left off to, to this valley. And chapter 19 and 20 reveals the return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of His millennial kingdom, and then the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, if, if you got tired or got weary in your soul, grinding through all the tribulation and the judgment, it, it's all uphill from here other than the great white throne, which is, which is terrifying, probably the most terrifying passages in all the Bible. What immediately precedes the passage that we're going to look at tonight, beginning verse 11 
are the four hallelujahs of heaven. Heaven speaks first, and then it takes place on earth. But after the four hallelujahs, heaven is opened, and we see the Lord. John sees the Lord, and he is arrayed in white, his eyes like a flame of fire. And three names are written on his robe, and he's riding on a white war horse. Similar scene to the very first vision in Revelation chapter 1, where John looks and he sees the, the figure of Christ, and he ends up falling like a dead man. You remember that? A lot of similarities of the same vision of Christ, but, but this time in Revelation 1, Christ is standing in Revelation 19. He's seated on a war horse. I would say no other scene in the Bible, save the resurrection, brings more hope for believers and strikes more fear in the heart of Satan than the passage that we're getting ready to getting ready to read. And we'll see there are two views from which you can observe this coming. Application up front. You can look up and see him riding for you, gathered in the valley, if you make it through the tribulation, or... The other view is looking forward and seeing him ride out in front of you, following him along. And, and, and if you don't know, that's the one. The second view is the one that, that, that you want. And if you're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the view you're going to have of this day. You're not going to be on the battlefield. You're not going to be a believer hiding in the rocks or the caves. You're going to be riding with the Lord Jesus Christ, as you'll see tonight. Ten verses. We're not even going to be able to cover them all. But John sees it all and describes it. So let's begin reading in verse 11, and we'll stop in verse 21. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and cried out. he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who's, who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed by the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. 
and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now remember, whenever we're reading Revelation, there's symbolism. So there's like this and like that. But symbolism is not some mystery. It's very clear what all of this means, and we'll walk through it tonight and see. I would outline verses 11 through 20. There's three sights that John sees, three depictions when Jesus comes. There is the king's arrival. That's in verses 11 through 16. He describes heaven opened and seeing this this figure, the, the warrior Messiah on this white horse. And he describes exactly what he sees and why he's coming and what he's going to do. That's the king's arrival in verse 11 through 16. That's what we're going to see tonight. Then there's the Almighty's assault or the great supper of God where he calls all the birds to to prepare for a feast. And then there's the, the rebels' abolishment, all of the rebels of the earth, the kings of the earth, the beast, the false prophet, all the armies, small and great, all of these rebels that have been running around from the beginning, shaking their fist in God's face, will come to their end and ultimately be abolished from the Messiah's kingdom. Because that's what's coming next. What's coming next in chapter 20 is how he binds Satan for a thousand years and then he establishes his millennial reign. And so they'll all be abolished for that period of time. And we'll see what happens to them whenever we get there. Tonight, we're going to look at the king's arrival. And John begins with his announcement. Look, if you would, at verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened. Now, just just think about that for a minute. That would be terrifying enough. If you just walked out of church tonight, you looked up into, into the sky, and all of a sudden... The blue sky broke open and you were able to look into heaven. That would be a terrifying thing. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold. John begins with an announcement, but it's a silent one. He says, behold, but but all he sees is heaven open. A lot of times whenever John sees these visions, he sees an image and then he hears like the voice of of many waters or, or thunder or lightning. But here... There is simply light. Heaven opens, and there's light, so there is no sound. The arrival of our Lord is revealed by the heavens being opened and the call to to behold, to behold Him, to behold the One who is coming. Zechariah tells us that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, this is the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. This is the second coming. Zechariah tells us, that Jesus will return at the very spot, which is the Mount of Olives, on which he ascended. You remember in Acts chapter 1, right? And he says, the angels say, ye men of Galilee, while stand ye gazing, the same Jesus is just taken up from you, will return in like manner. And you remember the question that they're asking. Is now the time for the kingdom? Is the kingdom going to happen now? We saw this morning, it's because Jesus is always talking about the kingdom. They want to see the kingdom come. And he says, first, it's not for you to worry about the time when the kingdom is going to come. You will be my witnesses. But he also says, the same Jesus that ascends into heaven is going to return in like manner. And Zechariah tells us he's going to return to that very spot, the Mount of Olives. And it's going to be a powerful return. The Mount of Olives, Zechariah says, is going to split in two because of the, 
the sheer power and glory of the Lord. Matthew chapter 24 describes the second coming of Christ. Verse 27, it says that He's going to come like lightning, like lightning flashes from east to west. Every eye will see Him. It will be sudden and it will, it will light up the sky. And Jesus will come when all of the universe is dark. Now remember all the context in Revelation. The sun has been blackened. You can barely see the, the smoke. The only thing that's lighting the world up are the fires that are burning from Babylon. And so that makes it even more dramatic scene here. The heavens are black because the stars have fallen from the sky. It gives forth no light. And then all of a sudden the heavens break open and the glory of the Lord lights all of the universe and clearly the sky. He'll come visibly, gloriously, in blazing light, powerfully, personally, and with hosts and angels and glorified saints. And here, John sees him before he ever arrives. He sees him in the sky. He sees him in the, the heavens. Now, imagine if you're looking up into the sky. It's already dark because of the judgment. And all of a sudden, the heavens open and light bursts forth in the sky. And in a distance, you can see into heaven and you see the Lord making His way toward the earth and you don't know Him. You're gathered in that valley. That would be a, that would be a terrifying Scene. When I was young, one of the, the movies that came out that I wasn't allowed to watch until much later was the movie called Jaws. You remember that? None of it. None of it. And then I think there was Jaws 2 and 3 and 4 and 7. I have no many. How, how many that they made? But I couldn't watch it because it was a horror movie. You can imagine being gathered in that valley thinking that you are going to, to somehow win the day and what you see coming is the Messiah on a war horse and He's coming for you. And that's what John sees. This figure is on a white horse, he says in verse 11. And if the heavens opening wasn't an awesome enough view, his rider, this rider comes into view. And he's on a white horse. And Merrill Tenney said this passage contains one of the most dramatic pictures of the coming of Christ anywhere. He says, In the pattern of a Roman triumphal procession, the general returned from a successful campaign, and he and his legions were, were granted permission to walk and to parade up the main street in, street in Rome, the Via Sacra. He's mounted on a white horse. And all of Rome would have gathered to, to welcome him. And the general rode at the head of his troops, followed by all of the wagon loads of, of, the, of everything that, that he'd captured and he'd taken from the conquered nations and along with, with captives that were, that were going to be executed. And Revelation 6 shows us a white horse. The rider there was an angel, went forth conquering and to conquer. But this is no angel. And we know that... We can tell that very easily. Here's the Lord riding on the white horse coming down the main street of, of heaven and He's coming to earth. And you know it's the Lord. Look at how He is described in verse 11. He is called faithful and true. And in righteousness He judges and wages war. And so the second thing that John describes here is is his, is his apparel, and we'll include his name in that. 
it tells us what he's called and what he's come for. And these are titles given to Christ, and they fit his mission. The one who is on this horse is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. There's his name, and there's his purpose. There's his action. He's called this, and he's come for that. He's declared faithful and true. What does that mean? He's faithful and true to his word, and he's returned just like he said. And all of those who scoffed in 2 Peter chapter 3, who said, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they have from the beginning. You remember 2 Peter chapter 3? You can turn on the TV, you can see plenty of scoffers today. Oh, that the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales. But I mean, it's been interpreted a hundred times over. I mean, how can you really know what the Bible says? It's a crutch for weak people. Praise God, I need the crutch. <laughs> I'm a weak person. In fact, I'm worse than weak. And they, they're blind. And they say it doesn't matter. It's all the same God, all the same book. It's just religion. There's religion, and then there's real life. Isn't that the message of today? Those are scoffers. And the one who is faithful and true will do exactly as he said he would do. He'll return. And they'll be silenced and they'll mock no more. The Bible says Jesus came the first time. He was promised the first time, wasn't he? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And the first time he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the Gospel of John says he didn't lose one. And the second time he comes, if you will, not to earth, but he comes... In the clouds for His church, and He'll take us to heaven. We saw an image of the marriage supper of the Lamb last time. What will take place in heaven with the church during the tribulation period? The second time He comes to earth, it's to wage war. And that's what He sees. That's what you see here. He's called faithful and true in verse 11. But I want you to notice He wages war, but He does it in righteousness. You see that? In righteousness He judges and wages war. There's not a single sinner who dies or who is punished unrighteously by the Lord. And that's one of the first things that you realize whenever you come to Christ. It doesn't begin with Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The first thing that you realize, the first thing that God does in tenderizing your heart, breaking your heart, is you acknowledge that you're a sinner, right? I mean, before you ever reach out to the Savior, why do you need a Savior? Why do you need the Lord Jesus Christ unless you realize what the Bible says that you really are? And that's the offensive part of the gospel. The offensive part of the gospel is you have no hope. And yet there's not a single sinner who dies or who is punished unrighteously. They have the witness of creation. The Bible says that creation is a witness so that everyone is rendered without excuse. They have the witness of creation. They've had the witness of the gospel. They rejected both, and now they stand before Christ's righteous judgment. And that's what he comes to do. I want you to notice verse 12, because it gives another reason why you can be sure that his judgment is righteous. He judges perfectly. He doesn't just judge righteously, he judges perfectly. Look at verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. This is all judgment language. This is all the basis for his judgment. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning it means nothing escapes his penetrating gaze. Now, my mama told me that nothing good ever happened after dark, right? And especially after midnight. Dark's okay whenever you get a little bit older, but once you stay out past midnight, you better be traveling or helping somebody. And yet a lot of sin takes place in the dark. At least people think it takes place in the dark, but it doesn't take place in the dark before the Lord. It's like the light of day to Him. In the cover of darkness, God sees as plain as in the light of day. And here, the Lord Jesus is described as having eyes that are a flame of fire. Fire is penetrating. It purifies. It reveals what is truly there. Silver tried in a furnace. So the dross is, rises to the top and is skimmed off. Nothing escapes this judge's penetrating gaze. He knows the motive of the heart. He knows the action of the feet and hands. He knows every heart and every sin of every person that's gathered in the valley of Armageddon. And he judges without error. That's what that means. And he also wears many crowns or diadems on his head. You see that? His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. That is crowns represents he's the rightful ruler overall notice it's not just one crown it's many crowns isn't it he's the rightful ruler overall not only can he judge righteously because he can see perfectly but he is the one who has the position as judge now we say no other country has jurisdiction over the united states and rightfully so we're a sovereign nation and we also say in state court, West Virginia has no jurisdiction over Virginia. Yes, they have laws in West Virginia. They just don't always keep them, especially when it comes to moonshine and those kind of things. Well, John says King Jesus has jurisdiction over all. And there are two types of crowns in Revelation. There's a Stephanos. We saw that last Sunday night, which is a victor's crown. It's, it's a victor's wreath. It's, it's made, out of, made out of leaves, and, and it might sound silly to us, but, he, but, but the Corinthian crown was, was even made out of celery. It's a victor's crown. It was won for, uh, for a, a victory in the games, and it's, it's described as what is given to victorious saints, saints that persevere in Revelation 2.10 and 3.11. This is a crown that's won. And this is one that's given to you. There's another crown called a, a diadema or a diadema. And that's the ruler's crown. That's the one worn by right. It's what you typically think of with a crown. Not, we think of like a, like a Stephanos, like a gold medal. That's what it was. But when you think of the king's crown, it, it's, it's, it's the ruler. It's given to him by by right, this is the crown that Jesus wears in this, in this scene. And there are many of them because He's King of kings and He's Lord of lords. And He also has a name that no one knows. This is all in the apparel, the description, the announcement. And then what He's wearing. Eyes like a flame of fire and on His head many diadems. And he has written on him 
which no one knows, a name which no one knows except himself. This is the first of three names in this passage. That's significant. Yes, three names, and we'll see them all, but, but John sees this first one, and it says he can't comprehend it. That's what it means. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. It's a, it's a mystery. And there are things that are a mystery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints didn't know. And the Apostle Paul says that, that to him it's been given the privilege to understand the mysteries. It's meaning that it's something that was there, but God hadn't revealed yet, and now he's revealed it in the, in the New Testament. He's a New Covenant preacher. He preaches what was before unknown. Well, here is a name that no one knows. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not even the saints in heaven, not even the angels. The only one that knows this name is the Lord Himself. He has a name, but John can't understand it. I think you hear a faint echo of, the, of Moses in the burning bush. And you remember when Moses is arguing with the Lord, if you will, and he says, who will I, will I say has sent me? What's your name? And God says, tell them, I am that I am, or I am the one who is, has sent you. This is the best way that God can give His name. It's the name of Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. I am that I am. There's no beginning, no end. How, how do you give a name to describe God? The Bible is full of names. I am the one who is. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ will be given a name that is above every name. But John can't comprehend that name here. And that should comfort you. It should. It should comfort you that there are things about God that not even a sanctified saint in a spiritual vision can comprehend, and we won't even whenever we're, we're glorified. It should comfort you that God is bigger than you are. He knows things that you don't. There are things about Him you can't understand. That's a comfort. He should also tell you that you shouldn't get too big for your theological britches, Right? You don't understand everything. You won't understand everything. You just let the text say whatever it says, and whatever it says, praise God, you stand on it, and you die by it. While John sees the name and can't understand it, he can make out and fully understand what, what else is on his robe. View it at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. There's the second name. Now, get this scene, because all the attributes of God are on display here. Not all of them, but, but many. In this revelation of Jesus Christ. His eyes are fire. His head crowned with many crowns, showing his, his sovereignty, his right to rule. He possesses a name that is yet unrevealed, and his robe is dipped in blood, anticipating the blood shed that is, that is to come. He's pictured in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 as a lamb that was standing slain. The Bible pictures Jesus Christ in heaven. Right now, He is at the right hand. He's ascended into heaven, and He's at the right hand of the Father as your advocate, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I have you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Believers sin. 
But as the old preacher said, there's a difference between slipping in a mud puddle and jumping in one, right? So you don't want to sin. You try not to. But if you do sin, what do you do? Go do penance, give some money, burn some candles, take the mass. What do you do? Your only hope is the same hope that you had to come to Christ to begin with, the advocate who is in heaven. And so when Satan accuses you, you just agree with him. And you point to Jesus Christ. You're right, I'm way worse than what you think that I am or what you say that I am. But there's one who's way better than any sin that I've ever committed. And he is at the right hand. And he at the right hand has the marks of the slaughter still upon him. The marks of the cross are still on on Christ. He's a lamb standing that was slain. And that blood signified the redemption that he brought to his people. This blood signifies the judgment he is bringing to his enemies. This comes from Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Not going to work. Isaiah 63. 1 through 6. Turn back there if you would, because I can't get it up on the the handy-dandy screen there. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Now, you know what's going to happen, right? The minute that we all get to Isaiah 63, like, look at there. What did I tell you? I'm a prophet. No, I'm not. Isaiah 63. Here he is. His garment is dipped in blood. His robe. Isaiah 63. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Now, can you imagine treading a winepress, stepping on grapes and them squishing everywhere in a white robe? It wouldn't stay white very long, would it? Why is your apparel red? Your garments are like one who treads the winepress. And here's the answer from God. I have trodden the, the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption was come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold So my right arm, my own arm, brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And now you're back on the screen. I trod down the people in anger and made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And that's exactly what's happening here in Revelation 19. The bloodstains on his robe are not his own. (laughs) It's the blood of his enemies. And it symbolizes his coming victory. Now, you remember the bloody scene from this morning in in Mark. 220,000 gallons of blood spilled in a few hours' time. What a mess. And it's all to help us understand the seriousness of sin and the need for the Messiah. I mean, if all of that blood can't even take away one sin or cleanse one man's conscience, you have a need. And that blood couldn't take away one sin. But that amount of blood is nothing compared to be the with the blood that will be shed in the, in the battle of, of the Valley of Megiddo. 
Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, which we've already seen, says that God will demonstrate His justice by shedding the blood of His enemies, and it will run in the Jezreel Valley up to the bridle of horses. That's a lot of blood. And why will He do that? Well, justice. The Bible says God's wrath is being stored up against all ungodliness, being stored up like a dam. It's being added to every moment. Why did Jesus say to Judas, it would have been better for that man to have never been born than, than to go into, go into hell? Because eternity is a lot longer than the earth. But also, specifically for Judas, every exposure that Judas had to the truth, Every time he hardened his heart, every time he rejected, every time he pilfered the bag, every time that he took a lustful look, every time he did something, it was storing up wrath behind that dam. God owes a payment for all of those sins, the sins that you and I commit, the transgressions, the attitudes and the iniquity in our heart, the rebellion, and also the falling short, what we fail to do, that we should do, the love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of those things are added wrath upon wrath. We're born as children of wrath, and then that wrath is stored up throughout all of our, all of our lives. It's stored up against all ungodliness, and it's being added to every moment. But in His long-suffering nature, God holds it back. You've seen that all through Revelation, haven't you? And He holds it back. He witnesses again, and they reject, and... And he, and he witnesses again. He sends out the 144,000. The two witnesses come. I mean, over and over. He, he shares mercy with Judas even before he, he does the act. He holds it back because he desires men to come to repentance. But he also unleashes it because his justice demands it. And when he does... Blood will be shed that will run several feet in the Jezreel Valley. John Walbert says, God's anger is His preliminary expression and God's wrath is His final expression of divine judgment. And here is the wrath that comes, and it comes from one who's named. His robe is dipped in blood in verse 13. And his name is called the Word of God. This is the second name that we have. And it tells us this name, doesn't it? And it's a name that you've heard before. Haven't you heard this name before, the Word of God? Where have you heard it? In the Gospel of John, the very first verse in the Gospel of John. That's how John chapter 1 starts. I got it? Oh, I do. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. What's that talking about? Creation. And without Him, nothing was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the beginning, let there be light. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Christ. He's the Creator. That's what John chapter 1 is emphasizing. And so this name, the Word of God, His name declares that He's the Creator. And as the Creator, He has the right to rule. He has the right to judge. 
Why can you go anywhere in the planet? Why can you go in the middle of Pakistan, an Islamic country, and tell them they must bow the knee to Jesus Christ or go to hell? Why, why can you do that? Because He's the same Creator over all men, and as the Creator, He by... He, by that creation, has the right to rule over His creation. We've said this before. It's humorous. And your mother says, I brought you into the world and I can take you out. And that's what she's saying. I made you. Well, God has a whole lot bigger right than your mother does, even though that's pretty big. His name declares He's the Creator. And because of that, He has the right to judge. And judge His creation that rejects Him. And he also gives the right to his creation to go to heaven. Those who will trust in his name will follow him. I want you to notice his army. Oh, this is getting good now. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Where are these armies? They're in heaven. And notice they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And notice what else they're doing. They're, they're following him on white horses. One verse, three descriptions or three, three statements so we can tell who this army is. John sees another sight. Behind the king is a great army. So who is it? Well, I think the text tells you. Pretty clear. They're in heaven. So whoever it is has been in heaven with the Lord. They're not on the earth. They're not the Jews that are going to go into the kingdom. They're not the army. It's not the army that, that's gathered there that's going to fight against him, obviously. They're following him, so they're his subjects, right? And they're clothed in fine linen, which is described as white and clean. Now, you just saw this, but I want you to, to look back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Just look back a few verses. I'm sorry, in verse, let's look at verse 7. It's the fourth hallelujah. Let us rejoice and give glory to Him. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And who has made herself ready? His bride has made herself ready, the church. And it was given to her, that's His bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, one of the principles that you learn in hermeneutics is context, context, context. And the closer it is in context, the greater emphasis that it is. I don't think you need, to, you need to worry about that too much. I mean, just a few verses earlier, it's very clear. Whoever this is, is clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we're told just a few verses earlier, that's the righteous acts of the saints. And that's exactly what the what the church is wearing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while there, there may be many angels who come with them, the, this army is not angels. They're the saints. And they're not just any saints. They include the church. Look at what 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 tells you to expect at the second coming of Christ. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do, so that... He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all 
the saints. So how does He come with the saints if the saints aren't with Him in heaven? Have you noticed that we haven't heard anything about the, about the church in Revelation since chapter 3? You haven't heard a single thing about the church in Revelation. The seven letters to the churches, that's the last time in Revelation that we've heard about the church. The rest is totally silent. There's nothing during the tribulation period about the church. There's nothing during the destruction of Babylon. Not at all. You know why? Because the church wasn't there. <laughs> the church is in heaven. She's been in heaven with the Lord since the rapture. And now after she has enjoyed the marriage supper celebration, she's riding behind her Lord as He comes to make war. And clearly, I think this army would also include the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, but it, but it also surely includes the church. And whenever he comes, he acts. Look at verse 15. Look at his action. The final one here. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses... From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now you say, if the church is his bride, does Jesus believe in women fighting in combat? I don't think he does. The church won't lift a finger. The Bible says that Jesus will speak and all will fall. It's a sword that comes out of his mouth. There are two weapons mentioned here. There's the broad sword that's coming from his mouth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. It's a specific kind of sword. And then there is a, uh, a rod of iron. So he's going to strike down with the sword. He's going to rule with the rod. Do you see that? One is to take his rule, that's the sword, and one is to rule once he's enthroned, that's the iron scepter. And both of these are fulfillments of the, of the Old Testament. John says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. In Isaiah 11:4, it says, the Messianic king will strike the earth with a rod from his mouth. This sword is unique, this word is unique, it's a very long Unusually, unusually long sword. It, it's like a two-handed one. It's a really big, really long. And the sword comes out of his mouth, and it's sharp. And you hear the echo of Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And here the Word of God speaks again. And just as God spoke the world into existence, just as faith comes by hearing... Just as Jesus' words are what we're to proclaim to the world that, so that light can shine in their darkened hearts, Jesus will speak in judgment and they will they'll fall. And once that happens, He establishes His reign. So the sharp sword comes out of His mouth so that He may strike down the nations who's gathered in the army. And then He will rule... With a, with a rod of iron. Turn back to Psalm chapter 2, because this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And I, I, I hope, I, 
I don't want to blow up one of your one of your favorite mission verses, missions verses, if if it is, is one of your favorite mission verses. I've heard it many times in mission conferences, but I want you to see what it's saying here and how it ties to Revelation 19. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations, why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. It's not Israel. The kings of the earth. Notice this is not Israel. This is, this is, these are Gentiles. These are the nations. These are unbelievers. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel together. And it's against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is His anointed? That's the Lord Jesus. And they're saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Throw off their authority. Throw off rule. And here's God's response to the counsels of of the great kings of the earth. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord scoffs at him. It's a reminder, I think it's it's a reminder of Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel where they say they're going to build a tower to reach into the heavens. And and there's this irony where it says God steps down out of heaven to look and see what they have built. They're going to build a tower into the heaven. And the Lord has to descend significantly all the way down to the earth to even be able to see this puny little thing that man thinks is so great. And here the one sits in the heavens and laughs and the Lord scoffs at him. So he sits... He laughs, he scoffs, then he speaks. Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You know where Zion is, right? Jerusalem. And I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. Here it is. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And there's the verse. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. That is absolutely true. But look at what Jesus Christ is going to do with this inheritance. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthenware. He's going to judge them. So just as there is a people that will bring Christ glory for all of eternity, gathered around the throne, giving glory to the Lamb, there is also a people that are unredeemed, that are rejectors, that will also be His inheritance, and His justice will be shown by pouring it out on them. And He has the right to save because of the cross and the death and the resurrection. And He has the right to judge because of the cross and the death and the resurrection. Why will mankind be judged? Because they did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You're already judged for your sin. The books will be open in Revelation. And you'll be judged out of the books. What does that mean? You will be shown all the sins that you have done, but it will be because your name's not found written in the book of life that you'll miss heaven. Now, therefore, O kings, here's the appeal that God makes, that God's been making 
before Psalm 2, since Psalm 2, that God's making to you tonight and to the world. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning. Heed what is coming, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son. That He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There are those who will take refuge in Him. And you do that by kissing the Son, by paying homage to the Son, and you won't perish. And then there are others that He's going to break with a rod of, of iron and shatter like earthenware. In the millennial kingdom, King Jesus will rule and He will reign MacArthur said the absolute character of the kingdom is described in the prophets. It's not a shared rule. It's an absolute kingdom. And Isaiah 2 says it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come saying, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in paths. He's talking about the, the kingdom, what it will be. Everyone will, Christ will sit upon David's throne, and all of the nations will, will look to, to the Lord, and he'll rule over them. They'll say, Let us go and learn so that we might walk in his paths. Israel will do the same thing. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That will be the blessed nature of the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the passages that you know from Christmas it says there's one who is coming and the government will be on his shoulders. The increase of his government and peace will there be no end. He'll establish it. He'll uphold it, listen, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And once he establishes the right to rule, he'll reign with a, with a rod, with justice And that will be a blessed kingdom. Turn back to Revelation 19 and we'll finish. While he'll rule over his kingdom, what he brings to his enemies before the kingdom comes is the undiluted judgment of God's fierce wrath. All of this wrath that is being stored up, Jesus is the one that gets to to release the dam. Verse 15. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Grapes are planted and then they're tended for a long period of time. I moved in the house that we're in right now five years ago. Six? I don't remember. I'm horrible with time. I know it's many years. And I love Concord grapes. I mean, my mother used to tell me they're going to come out my ears. 
And I don't eat, I don't, I don't eat the, the, the outside. I just take them and pop them. You know what I'm talking about? And I could just, I mean, I could just look like a raccoon. I could just, just strip everything on them. And I planted three grapevines to grow up a fence that was close to my garden. And six years later, I have yet to receive one grape from those grapevines. Now, that might have something to do with the gardener. But it also has something to do with the fact that it takes a long time for grapevines to grow. Grapes are planted and they're tended for a long period of time. And they're, they're dunged, they're fertilized, they're nurtured for years, and they finally bring a harvest. And when those grapes become ripe, then they're picked and then they're placed in a press, round, flat area with, a, with, a, with a, a little funnel on the end of it or a trough on the end of it, a round, big round area where they can be squished. And then the juice would, would run and it would, keep the, it would keep the seeds and the holes there because that will make the wine bitter. But the juice would run and it would run into a vat. They're all over Israel. If you go, you can see what one looks like. And the grapes are placed in these presses, and then it's expressed, and, and it's gathered for, for the wine so it can be used. This is a fitting symbol of the Lord's wrath. And just like God's wrath has been a long time growing, it's, it's now complete. And He didn't bring immediate judgment in the garden. Physical death, but not spiritual death. He passed over sins previously committed in ignorance, Paul says in, in Acts 17, meaning he didn't bring the final judgment. He didn't bring the hammer down when he could have. He's long-suffering, not wishing any to perish. Those grapes of judgment have been ripening, and, and now they've been fully squeezed, and that wrath the unbelieving world is about to drink. And it will not be a good year. The one who brings the undiluted wine is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here's the third name. That's a glorious name, isn't it? <laughs> King of kings and Lord of lords. On his robe and his thigh, it means the... The garment of the rider, where it, where it falls. It falls on his thigh. If you're riding on a horse, there are parts of the person that you can't see, right? And so the thigh, if, if, if you were going to, uh, you want to sell advertising on a, on a horse jockey like you would on a NASCAR, you'd want to put it on their thigh. Because that's the most prominent place for someone mounted on the, on, on the horse, on the, on the side of their leg. And here is the third name emblazoned. He has an unknown name. He's the Word of God. I mean, he's the Creator establishing His right to rule. And now He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Meaning He is the absolute King over all human rulers. This echoes back to the Old Testament, what Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. 
and He has the right to rule the earth. Finally, somebody worthy. Somebody worthy to rule. And one whose supremacy and dignity will prove why He is able to judge. And He'll strike down the nations. And He'll rule His kingdom with justice and righteousness. And we will rule and reign with Him as joint heirs because of His grace. And in verse 17 through 18, there's another call not to, not to us to behold, but for birds to fly to the great supper of God. And then in verses 19 through 21, the beginning of the aftermath of the war, the beast and the army and the false prophet are seized and cast in the lake of fire. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, here's the doom of Satan. Another angel comes down with a key and he lays hold of the dragon. He binds him for a thousand years. Look at Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony, and of Jesus because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the image. Here are the saints ruling and reigning with Christ. And what do we say? Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I can't wait for that day. Let's pray.